Good morning, and let me just add my welcome to Aaron's. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and so glad that you're with us this morning. And it's a beautiful morning, uh, unlike last week when it was snowing uh, at this time. So, you know, Kansas City, the weather is always changing, um, but it's a beautiful morning. We're so glad that you're here uh, celebrating with us um, and worshiping together as a church family. Um, whether you've been with us for a long time or this is your first time. So before we enter into the uh, sermon this morning, I'll read the scripture passage in a moment. I want to begin, uh, as we do each week, by praying and asking for God's help in receiving his word, his gift to us in his word. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have revealed yourself as the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you are community and that in you there has been relationship and communication uh, from all eternity and that you have invited us into that and that you make that invitation to us through your word. I pray that you would help us now um, by your spirit to get caught up into your life in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, begin to ask you to think about this, and that is, if you were to describe an ideal candidate uh, for Christianity, someone who think this is the ideal person to become a Christian, um, what would they be like? If you're thinking through who would be on Jesus' team, if Jesus is picking a group of people to sort of be his friends, his followers, what's that person like. So sort of imagine, you know, if, if Jesus, like Taylor Swift, has, has a squad, a close group of friends who he's always hanging out with, who are those people? What are they like? Um, all the people that you know in your neighborhood, at the office, at work, at school, um, who aren't yet Christians, um, who of them do you think they would be the most likely to become a Christian? So, okay, do you have that kind of person in your mind, maybe? Okay, now let me tell you a story and I'll warn you up front, it's a little bit of a dark story, so just be ready for that. Um, and it's set in the future. So imagine now, it's the future, it's uh, 2028, so a few years into the future. And through a series of sort of coordinated nuclear attacks, ISIS has now become the ruling government in the United States, except now they're called the ISIS Emirates of America. And you and your family have suffered greatly both during the war and now during the relative peace. Uh, you have a job, but it's, it's pretty low paying. And you're at the mercy, in, even in that job, of the ISIS leaders. And even though your pay is low and they've already taken so much from you, ISIS still exacts heavy taxes on what little income you have. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is that your next-door neighbor, Matt, is now the chief revenue officer for ISIS. And shortly before the war ended, he decided that if ISIS was going to win, then he wanted to be on the winning side. And, you know, Matt had always kind of been an opportunist. If there was a way to make money, he was there trying to make it. But you still can't believe that even he would go this far. Because he wasn't one of them. I mean, this, this is Matt. You went to college together. He, he grew up a couple of towns over. He is, was an American. But now while you and your family suffer and struggle, he's thriving 
As a chief revenue officer, Isis demands that he collect a certain amount of tax from the region, but his, his profit comes from what he collects on top of that. So if Matt says you owe $15,000, you know he's pocketing at least a third of that, which is why actually he isn't your next-door neighbor anymore. He just moved into one of those huge old mansions on Ward Parkway and takes lavish trips. He has a fleet of luxury vehicles, a driver, and a bodyguard, which is a good thing because he's made a lot of enemies. And you'd put yourself right at the top of that list if you didn't have that bodyguard. Can you imagine? What, what would it feel like to be in that situation? How, how would you feel about him becoming a Christian, joining your little oppressed underground community church? Really think about that for a moment. Because the story I've just told you is, this is Matthew's story. It just changed the date from 28, 2028 to AD 28. Change ISIS to the Roman Empire and Kansas City to Capernaum. You see, this is exactly what happened to the Jews. The, the Roman Empire was a brutal, oppressive government who exacted heavy taxes from them. And some of those tax collectors were Jews who had made the traitorous choice to collaborate with the Romans for their own gain. And this is who Matthew, the author of the gospel that we're studying, this is who he was. He was a Jewish tax collector for Rome. You see, he had contracted with the Romans to collect taxes from a particular region. So if the Romans said, from this, this zip code, Matthew, you have to collect $2 million, he would give them the $2 million, and then he would just collect as much as he could on top of that. And he was good at his work. He probably had a lot of people working with him, under him, and he was likely very wealthy as a result. So now let me read for you our text this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and following. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. This is Matthew's story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, this is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the, tax, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Who is the ideal candidate for the Christian faith? Who's the most likely to become a Christian? You see, we often tend to think of Christianity as either for those people who have their act completely together, who are kind of the goody-two-shoes, who always do everything right all the time. Or, on the other hand, we think that it's only for those people who are just so desperate and broken, they just need something to lean on, right? The, the addict who finally hit rock bottom, the person who suffered so much, they just need the hope of a, of a better world to come to make it through the day. And Christianity, the gospel, is certainly for those groups of people. But it's also for rich tax collectors, and for their friends. It's, it's for everyone, actually. 
Not, not, not quite everyone. And Christianity is for, for everyone except for those who think they're well, who think they're righteous, who think they don't need it. Because ultimately, only sinners become followers. That's what Matthew's telling us. Ultimately, only sinners become followers. You see, the, the gospel isn't for good people who don't think they need anything. The gospel is for bad people, for sinners, for the sick. You see, if, if you think that you're a good religious person, what Jesus has to say here is basically, I don't really have anything to offer you. But, but if you're a person who's, who's made a bunch of mistakes who sure has gotten some things right along the way, but that you know deep down here that there's something really wrong, then he's calling you. He wants you. Only sinners become followers. And what we're going to see this morning is that sinners who become followers, first, they know that they're sick. Second, they know that everything needs to change. And then third, they know how to celebrate. So sinners who become followers, they know how sick they really are. They know that everything in life needs to change, and they know how to celebrate. So first, sinners who become followers, they know they're sick. They know that while there may be a lot, they may be a lot of things as people. They may be successful, they may be influential, they may be rich, or they may be struggling and poor and marginalized. Whatever is true of them, they also know the one thing that is true of them is that they aren't well. And those are the people that Jesus wants. And not only does Jesus just want those people, he actually seeks them out. He calls them. I mean, can you imagine if you were James and John or, or Peter and Andrew, these, these pairs of, of brothers, these fishermen, small business owners that Jesus had called back in Matthew chapter 4? I mean, these guys, they worked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee as fishermen running their business. They conceivably, it's not impossible that they would have paid taxes at Matthew's tax booth. And now Jesus is calling him to come be a part of them. Jesus is calling him to become a part of them, that traitorous person. I mean, it'd be like Taylor Swift asking Katy Perry to come join the squad. It's two Taylor Swift references in one sermon, by the way. Now, it would have been one thing, right, if, if Matthew had been following Jesus around, like trying to, to get in with his group and saying, Jesus, I know I've made a lot of mistakes and, and I'm going to change and I'm going to do better. I promise I'm leaving all this thing behind. It would be one thing then if Jesus says, yeah, okay, why don't you come and make some changes and that'll be good. But, but we have no indication at all that Matthew has shown any interest in Jesus. Sure, he's probably aware of Jesus. He's, Jesus has kind of become popular. People know about him at this point. But Matthew isn't following Jesus around, trying to get in with him. He's sitting there at his tax booth, doing his tax collecting work, and Jesus comes and calls him. Now, you may remember, if you were with us back in January, when we started looking at Matthew's gospel, and we saw in chapter 4 Jesus calling um, James and John and Peter and Andrew, that, that rabbis, they didn't call followers. If you wanted to get in with a rat, it was much more like getting into school. You applied to be with them. They didn't go seeking you out. 
So it was crazy enough that Jesus calls these fishermen, that he as a rabbi goes and calls followers to himself. It's inconceivable now that he's calling someone like Matthew to come and be one of his followers. No rabbi would have done that. But Jesus, he, he isn't just any rabbi. Uh, he isn't just a good teacher. You see, Jesus, he's the sin-forgiving, leg-healing, tax-collector-calling God of the universe. And, and because of that, there's something about him that when he goes to Matthew and says, follow me, that Matthew can't help but get up and, and follow after him. Because there's just something about this person, Jesus, that when Matthew, he's never experienced being in the presence of anyone else like this before. And so just like Peter and John, just like James and Andrew, he leaves and he follows. And there's two things not, not to miss here. The first is the one, the idea that Jesus is calling Jesus is the one seeking. See, none of us on our own ever wanted, ever wants to follow Jesus. You see, if you're seeking after Jesus, if you're following Jesus, that's only true because he was seeking you first, because he called you first. I mean, that's what grace is. That's how grace works. I never wanted to follow Jesus, but thanks be to God, he rescued me. He called me. It's how grace works. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the amazing grace that we sang about. That even when I never wanted, even when I was an enemy, he's calling me. Second, Jesus is incredibly attractive to people, especially those that were considered sinners. They wanted to be around him. Look again at verse 10. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. That idea of reclining at table comes up twice in that little section of verses. And this is the picture of how people ate together. They, they actually reclined next to the table. It was a eating together. Again, it's the sign of intimacy and friendship, even much more so than it is for us today to eat with someone was such a close and intimate thing. And Jesus not only calls Matthew, but, but then he goes to his house and he spends time with all of Matthew's kind of shady, slimy friends. You see, Jesus was and is a friend of sinners. It's one of the ways that he's known. It's actually an accusation that the Pharisees make of him later on. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In fact, Jesus is a true friend. He is the true friend who's always loyal, who's humble, who's kind, who's always interested, always available. Which is incredible given who Jesus is, right? Because Jesus is brilliant. He's incredibly powerful. We saw just a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 8, he's healing people. He's got massive crowds that follow him. He's, he's kind of a celebrity. He has incredible power to still storms and most of the time in life, if you have someone with incredible power and intelligence, it's not usually also coupled with, brilliant, with, with humility and kindness and gentleness. 
And yet Jesus embodies both of those to the point that the people just can't help but want to be with him and be around him. But again, like we saw last week when Jesus heals the man who can't walk, the religious leaders, they just can't handle it. And it's the Pharisees this time. Last week it was the scribes, but a different group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. And listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this moment in the story. He says, when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? And Jesus overhearing shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. See, sinners who become followers, they know that they're sick. Jesus came to call people who know they're sick. Jesus wants people who know that they're sinners all the way down. He he isn't just interested in people who say, yeah, yeah, I know I've got a few bad habits I need to kind of tweak and adjust. So the question then for us is do we know how sick we are? Do we really know how sick we are? See, again, Jesus isn't interested in followers who think they've done a pretty good job at life. He's interested in those who have made all kinds of terrible choices and huge mistakes. And, and if you're here this morning and you think, well, I haven't really made any huge choices or terrible decisions or huge mistakes, then we just need to think a little harder. Because <laughs> all of us have, right? There's no one is healthy in this room. Jesus came to call me a sinner in need of grace and mercy. And don't miss what Jesus says in that little phrase. It's easy to pass over, but he says, I came to call. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus wasn't one of us. He came to us to become one of us in order that he might rescue us. And when Jesus quotes to the Pharisees this passage from the Old Testament from a little prophetic book called Hosea, about mercy and sacrifice. It's Jesus' way of saying that God has always been about this. For as long as God has been engaged with humanity, he's been after authentic followers who know that they need him, not self-righteous religious people. And that's why on Sunday mornings here at Christ Community, we strive so much to speak and to act. As always, though, there's both Christians and non-Christians here. People who are at all places in their spiritual journey. Those who have walked with, with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years and those who are coming in and saying, I have deep questions about what happens here and I'm only here because a friend or a family member brought me. And this is why we invest time and energy into relationships with, with people who, who are still exploring what it means to follow Christians. The church is for people who are sick, not people who are well, because all of us here this morning are sick. I mean, imagine a hospital. You know, you think of St. Luke's down in the plaza. Imagine St. Luke's with all of its vast resources and physicians and nurses and medical equipment and, ed, and medication and pharmacies, but, but they never took any sick patients. That all the hospital did was keep its doors firmly locked in order to keep the staff from being infected with all those diseases that were out there. Can you imagine a more useless thing? I mean, maybe only a church that exists just for itself. Only sinners become followers. They, They know they're sick. 
And Jesus talks about he didn't come for the healthy. And here's the ironic thing, that there aren't any healthy people. And the people who think they're healthy, who think they're well, are actually the ones who are the most sick, the most deceived. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he under, understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows that he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. Sinners who become followers know that they're sick. They also know that everything needs to change. So they know they're sick, but they also know everything needs to change. And people like Matthew, they, they know that they don't need just a few little tweaks, adjustments, a few good morals, a little inspiration. People like Matthew, sick people, dying people, sinners, they know they need a brand new start, a new life, a new heart. And all of this comes out here in this next section. And it, it's a different conversation, but they go together. The Pharisees are basically saying, Jesus, why are you partying and hanging out with these people? Why are you partying so much? But in this next section, a group of disciples who follow John the Baptist, who's another part of the story, they come and say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast more? In other words, why aren't they more serious, more somber? And this is how Jesus responds. He says, this is in verse 16, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. And then he says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So no wonder people say the Bible is hard to read, right? What in the world does that mean? Okay, so, so Jesus is using a metaphor. He's using a metaphor of, of clothes, of clothing, and, and wine. And he's saying if you, if you have clothes that get a hole in them and you just put new unshrunk fabric on that and then you put it in the washer, it's going to make the tear even worse. And the same with wineskins. So wineskins were, were animal skins that they would put wine into and then as the wine fermented, it would expand and the wineskins would stretch and hold the wine. And that's fine with the old wine that's already stretched out. But if you take that old wine skin that had already been stretched and you put new wine in and begin that fermentation process over again, the skins are too brittle. They're going to break and shatter and you destroy the wine skin and you lose the wine. Okay, Bill, so now I understand the metaphors, but what in the world does it mean? Why is Jesus using that? Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, similarly, if you try to add Jesus... If you, to his new way of doing things, if you just want to add Jesus into your life, it's not going to work. Jesus won't just be an, an add-on to what you're already doing. So the question is, what are you trying to hold on to? You, you can't add the new to the old. You have to start fresh. It's the only way. Jesus isn't interested in followers who just want to say, I'm going to kind of keep doing life as I always have, but I'll just sort of add Jesus on as, as, a, as a facet of it. He, we often tend to think about Jesus like we think about an app on our, on our smartphone, right? So it's like you, you discover a new app for editing photos or listening to music or um, maps, and you download it on your phone, you're excited about it. And when you want to listen to some music or edit a photo or get directions, you, you pull out your phone, you open up the app, and 
you use it and it's great and it helps you and, and then you just go on. And this is often how we think about Jesus and the gospel, that it's sort of Jesus, it's a great app for your life. When you need him, just tap to open. He's beautifully designed, simple to use. And when you're done, close the app and, and get back to life. But here's the thing, Jesus isn't an app. He's actually like a whole new operating system on which every other app runs. Becoming a Christian isn't like just downloading an app, adding Jesus into your life. Jesus is an entirely new operating system that rearranges and reorders how everything else in your life functions. It's a whole new way of seeing life, of living, that now every other app works differently because of him, and nothing remains the same. Jesus will not be an add-on. He completely changes everything. Only sinners become followers. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything else is nothing. So sinners become followers. They know they're sick. They know everything needs to change. And finally, they also, they know how to celebrate They know how to celebrate. This is the other part of Jesus' answer to this question about why Jesus' followers are are partying instead of fasting. And Jesus uses another metaphor, this time of a wedding. And he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast, Jesus says. And again, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, the Messiah has come. And Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. I'm the one. And so when I'm here, my followers are going to celebrate because I'm the one they've been waiting for. They can't not celebrate. And yet there is coming a time, he says, when the bridegroom, when he, Jesus, will be taken away from them. That refers to his death. But Jesus didn't stay dead. That's what we celebrated last week, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is alive And so we as his followers now, we must celebrate. Death has been conquered, defeated. Joy, C.S. Lewis said, is the serious business of heaven. So also two C.S. Lewis quotes, Lewis and Taylor Swift. We must celebrate. And there is a tension to be managed here for us, right? Because as Christians... We celebrate, but we also do fast. Jesus says, my disciples, my followers, they will fast. And we do fast because we live in a time in between, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And we live in a world that's still not yet fully as it ought to be. And so there are times when we grieve and we fast because he hasn't come yet. We fast because we know that, that we're tempted to be satisfied and celebrate in things that are so much less vastly less worthy or satisfying than Jesus in his kingdom. So fasting, it helps us to celebrate true joy, to remember where our true joy is found. You see, sinners who become followers, they, they celebrate differently. They celebrate with a different hope. So is joy a regular part of your life? Do you celebrate? And how do you celebrate? Are you celebrating with a longing for what is to come? Or are you celebrating only as a distraction from the pain? And and do you know the difference between the two, right? Because it's easy for us to look at two different people who are celebrating and maybe not see that much difference. 
But there's two vastly different ways in which you can celebrate. You can celebrate just to distract yourself from the pain. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That that we celebrate, we get as much out of this life because this is as good as it's going to get. Or we can celebrate with an anticipation of the hope that we know now just in part and we will anticipate and enjoy fully in the end. And while, again, those two things may look very similar from the outside, they could not be more different. The first, to eat, drink, for tomorrow we die idea, that that is a celebration that says, now is as good as it's going to get. The second type of celebration says, this is just the beginning, and it only gets better from here. This means that sinners who become followers view everything differently when it comes to celebration. Every, every glass of wine, every perfect steak, every vacation, every time with family, every good gift becomes just a little tiny taste of what has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus and what one day will be true for them in full when his kingdom comes. And so if you're a Christian and you don't celebrate, if you're always dour and sour, go and learn what it means your sins are forgiven and rejoice. Because yes, Christians, (laughs) yeah, because Christians mourn. They do mourn. They weep. They fast. They lament. But they even do those things with hope because Jesus is alive. Is joy a part of your life? Even mourning, fasting are done in hope. Sinners who become followers know that they are sick. They know that everything needs to change. And they know how to celebrate. You see, the gospel, it's, it's good news for the worst people. And it's the worst news for the best people. Because the best people, the gospel says, look, even your best isn't good enough. But if you know you're sick, if you know you don't have it all together, if you know you're broken and in need, the gospel is the best news. Because Jesus loves sinners. He loves them so much that in his kingdom, he doesn't require or wait for people to rise to his level of being perfect as the Pharisees did. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. Rather, he seeks them. He calls us. He bids us come and follow him. Even when we didn't want anything to do with him, even when we weren't looking for him, he comes and calls us. He didn't call to come the righteous, but sinners. He came to call me. He's calling you. He wants you to come and be with him. Have you chosen to follow him? He's calling you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that you, in your incredible, amazing grace, have called me and have called each one of us. You are calling us, saying, come, follow, know me. For those of us who maybe have been following you for a long time, remind us anew that the only reason that's true of us is that you called us first. That on our own, we would have never, ever wanted you. For those of us who are still trying to figure out if we're being called, help us to hear your voice. Help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is calling
that he is saying, come, follow me. In Jesus' name, amen. Each week here at Christ Community, we celebrate communion um, as a way of reminding ourselves of this good news that Jesus came to call those sinners and offer, to offer forgiveness. And we do this each week together as a, as a church family, and you don't have to be a, a, a member of Christ's community to do this. Um, and when you come and celebrate at the table, feast together, celebrate at this meal that Jesus offers to us, what you're saying is that I, I know that I'm sick and I know that Jesus is my only hope. And so whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or, or for three minutes, come and celebrate in this meal. Come and celebrate. And truly, maybe for the first time this morning, you said, I, I've never sensed this before, but I think that Jesus is calling me. Come and celebrate. When you stand in that communion line and you take the bread and dip it in your cup, you're saying, this, this is my hope. This is my one place of joy. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not ready to say that yet. <laughs> and that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. And I would just say, even if you have to get up kind of with your road and move out through the line, you can just pass on receiving communion. But maybe for the first time even pray and say, Jesus, if you are calling me, I don't know if I hear that. I don't know if you know what it means to hear that, but I want to know that. Would you make yourself clear to me? Because he is calling he does want to know you. So whether it's been 30, 40, 50 years, or just a few minutes, come and celebrate at the table.